thank the men for singing. Really feeling overwhelmed with memories uh, tonight. I sang in the men's group before we're preaching in the pulpit here. Stand beside Tom Lavert here in this corner, him goldering in my ear, uh, singing uh, tunefully but loudly in my ear. Uh, those memories came back to me uh, here in the men's group singing again uh, tonight. So many memories. Uh, again, as the brother said, 20 years since Cherith and I came with two little ones, uh, the congregation here. And uh, over time, again, became very much part of the work here and God's grace. I remember our sender, Brother Greer, at that time, you were redoing the, the porch out here in the front. The lobby was being uh, refurbished, and I came through the door here, and the sun was coming through, winter sunshine. I couldn't see the pew, didn't know where to sit, didn't know where to go, feeling totally overwhelmed, and believing at that time that I would never, ever preach in the free church pulpit. I had done some preaching in Baptist churches and felt at that point that was the door closed in public ministry and I was coming to be a member of this work. And God had different plans. And I've already said 2005, again, Dr. Cairns preaching powerfully on the subject of Moses and the call of Moses to the ministry. I felt the compulsion of God and really in a very broken state spoke to Mr. Greer about preparing for the Christian ministry. So many memories of this very conference. Of course, in those days, it was held in June time. Uh, but many memories of God's mercy and God's grace. One thing that struck me back in that conference was, again, sitting up in the back uh, or the front row of the gallery at that time, was if I'm going to the ministry, I can never, ever prepare four sermons in a week. There's no way I could ever do that. That's completely impossible. And Dr. Cairns, during the sermon, I don't, I've listened to it since, and I don't hear the same emphasis as I heard at that time. But it was, follow me, and I will make. And those words, I will make, stuck my heart so firmly on that occasion. that I thought, okay, Lord, it's over to you. I'll go, and you do all the work enabling me to serve in the gospel ministry. And here, 18 years later, that's still the burden of my heart. I feel the responsibility of these meetings very, very keenly. I'm very thankful for the invitation. It came as a tremendous surprise. And thank, again, the ministers and the session of the work here for the invitation to come and labor in the word. But I still feel that same, same thankfulness that if God has called to this task, he will enable and equip. And I know you've been praying. I'm very thankful for the prayer meetings here. I know you've been praying much uh, for these meetings. I feel that already. And we've also been praying in Malvern for the meetings. Again, the folks there have been praying for this church and for these meetings that we would know God's blessing together in the work of God here. Some of them will listen on this afternoon. It's 2.30 there, just over, well, so 3 o'clock now. Uh, perhaps listening in and watching on, and they'll have been singing that hymn, knowing that's the right tune. And that's the tune in our hymn book over in the U.S., and so we've been singing that hymn, and so I was, I was singing heartily tonight, so I know that tune very, very well. Uh, had hoped a little bit that I might sing the Ulster hymn, though, but anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there. But very good to sing that hymn of praise again uh, tonight. Well, it won't surprise you when I tell you we're going to turn to the book of Jonah, uh, so please turn in the Word of God to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. We'll read the first three verses tonight, uh, and then we'll pray. We'll ask God's, again, blessing upon us. Jonah chapter 1 and the verse number 1, the Word of God says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Please bow your heads together with me in prayer. Seek God's face for your own soul tonight, and for and again, the help of God to come to his precious word. Eternal God and Father, we thank you for the work of God in this place. Considering memories of past years, thank you again for the remembrance of your servants, for the ministry of Dr. Cairns. We praise your name, O God, for a faithful man of God. We thank you, dear Father, again for our brother, Reverend Beggs, in the congregation and his ministry here, Reverend Greer and now Reverend Stuart. We thank you, O Lord, for 
men who've served faithfully in the Word of God. And we understand, O Lord, we come to pray tonight in the recognition that each of these men understood the simple truth that they were not sufficient for the gospel ministry and their sufficiency is of God. And I come, O Lord, tonight in the very same posture, recognizing, O God, that in of myself I am nothing and can do nothing. But by the power of the Spirit of God, we pray that you'd use me to speak to each and every heart tonight. We pray that your word would indeed burn into your souls. As Brother Greer has prayed, it would really rest and abide in our hearts. Help us, O Lord. Pray for the young people here. May their hearts be changed this week. Would you work on their souls? Pray, O Lord, for those in the older phase of this life, that they would see new things in your word. In a very familiar book, help us all to benefit from the word. May unconverted souls be brought to Christ, backsliders restored, and the saints of God edified in their faith. O oh Lord, we're simply saying, come and do us good. Help us, O oh Lord. Bless us together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been announced well that we are having a Bible conference on this book of Jonah. Four short chapters. Really, my intention is to conduct a Bible study on the book of Jonah. Eight messages, eight sessions to consider in some detail the contents of this little book. But you know, when I say those words, a Bible study on the book of Jonah, you need to stop and think about some of the presuppositions behind that statement. Of course, I'm here. I believe that's a good thing. It's a good idea. And you're here. I don't know why you're here, but you're here, and I trust you share that conviction uh, that there's a recognition that there's something beneficial in coming to study the book of Jonah over the next number of days. But that is not a spirit held by all in the professed church of Christ. There are at least three convictions in the statement of Bible study in the book of Jonah that all are worth some consideration. First of all, we're engaging in Bible study. That's not usual. It's not all that common anymore. Again, yes, there are, again, many churches, and they have the Bible, and perhaps the Bible is referred to, but there's not the hunger to really study in depth the Word of God. Four chapters. You can read it in about seven minutes. You should do that each day this week. Just read it, embrace it, go through the four chapters bit by bit. Don't pause, just keep reading it day by day in about seven or eight chapters, depending how fast you choose to read. Why would you spend eight sessions studying the book of Jonah? Surely one sermon would be more than enough. Even 15 minutes, you could cover it all and, and, and in some detail, and that would be sufficient. No, because we have the conviction that Bible study is important, that a diligent application of our minds to the Word of God brings forth spiritual benefit. We can read the Word of God. We can, if you like, understand the contents of the Word of God. But in many ways, we, we get no further than the children's meeting when they simply know about Jonah being swallowed by a wheel. We know that much, but really not a lot more. You see, the Bible is given to us to be eaten, to be chewed on, to be digested and considered carefully, to search the Scriptures. It's those who search the Scriptures that receive the spiritual benefit, digging diligently into the Word of the living God. Bible study. I hope you've that desire this week, that you want to dig deep into the Word. You want to see, well, what is the Word really saying to my heart today? That you'll come prayerfully and prepared and with a prayerful spirit, Lord, open your word to me. Bible study is vital for believers. That's conviction number one. And the second conviction is this. Jonah was a real man. That itself is also surprising to some. He was a real man who entered a real fish and came out again still alive. That's a biblical conviction. And I want to tell you tonight, that's a very, very important biblical conviction. A hundred years ago, Professor Gresham Metchen, again, professor in Princeton Seminary in those days, 
he brought out a book called Christianity and Liberalism. It's 100 years old this year. In fact, this coming Friday, 102 years since he preached the first message uh, not far from the church in Malvern, outside Philadelphia. He preached a sermon out of which came this book, Christianity and Liberalism. It's a very important book in the history of the church in North America and indeed across the Western world. Liberalism. Not talking about being casual regarding, if you like, Christian standards. Proper liberalism coming from the conviction of higher criticism. The Bible should be viewed with some suspicion or at least with a critical eye. It was a book of its time. 2,000 years old. It's it's an ancient book, and it should be looked with modern eyes, scientific eyes. And so the Bible is viewed with some criticism. And of course, when you critically view the Bible with a rational mind back in the late 1800s, in the 1900s, you're going to doubt the supernatural. You're going to question the supernatural claims of the Word of God. And Machen put his finger on the issue. His book was entitled Christianity and Liberalism. He identified the reality that there's no such thing as liberal Christianity. Liberalism is not Christianity. They are distinct. One's true and the other's false. That is still the case today. Jonah, of course, is one of the most ridiculed books by the liberal scholars. The story of the fish swallowing a man and that man living sounds impossible. If it sounds impossible, therefore it must be impossible. And the liberal scholars deny these things. The book is rejected as a fairy tale. Or perhaps those who are more sophisticated will suggest, well, it's not a fairy tale, it's an allegory. It's like Pilgrim's Progress. It's a, it's a story to tell a lesson. It's a warning against Jewish nationalism. And therefore it comes as a piece of clever literature to, to warn the people in, a, in an engaging way. If we go down that line, we begin to pull apart the very gospel. That's why I say a Bible study in the book of Jonah presupposes certain convictions. You see, a detailed study of Jonah is, if you like, a denial of liberalism. In fact, we're going to take time to study this book, uh, believing it to be an historical narrative. Again, the liberals would have no time for that. You see, turn back, please, to 2 Kings chapter 14. By the way, of the three uh, convictions, this is the longest, okay? So three convictions, and then we'll get into the message for uh, tonight. But 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah is found in the Bible in the section, of course, known as the Minor Prophets. And in the prophetic scriptures, there undoubtedly are sections of pictorial, metaphorical language, figures of speech, things like Ezekiel's wheels, the visions of Daniel. There are picture language, and so the claim is, well, Jonah, Jonah's in that section of biblical genre, that section of the biblical account. Therefore, why would it not be allegory? Well, here in 2 Kings 14, a portion that nobody denies being historical, we have here in verse number 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reign 40 in one years. We'll see more of this tomorrow, but this is Jeroboam the second. The first one made Israel sin in the erection of the calves. This is Jeroboam the second, but it's a king of true history. And then verse 25 says this, He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah. And in case you think it's a different Jonah, It's the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-Hefer. So in an historical portion, we have a record of this man Jonah as a prophet of God coming sometime after the work of Elisha, the prophet. But turn also then across the New Testament to Matthew chapter 12. Of course, this is even more significant, of course, I'm not suggesting there's any competition in the Word of God, but when it comes to this portion, this really gives an eye-opener into the significance of the historical events of Jonah's prophecy. 
We have, of course, here the words of the Lord. There are scribes and Pharisees, verse number 38 of Matthew 12, and they want to see a sign from the Lord. And he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, but there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. We'll get there, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday evening. We'll look at this in some more detail. But look what he says. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Again, these liberals are are tricksters, slippery customers. And they'll suggest, well, I get this. There's a parallel here between Jonah and the whale and the Lord Jesus in the grave is a parallel here. But sure, the parallel will hold fast whether or not it's historical or not. You can just simply draw the parallel and no need to claim history. Uh, of course, that's nonsense. That's the, li- the, the liberal thinking that goes astray in so many ways. Again, one commentator puts it this way. Since the resurrection of Christ was historically real, so was the experience of Jonah. To regard Jonah as a legendary Sorry, to regard Jonah as legendary jeopardizes the gospel itself. It does. But let's allow the liberal to suggest, well, the allegory and the parallel still works. What about verse number 41? The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. You know, in many ways, the literal historical person of Jonah is as important as the literal historical person of Adam. No Adam, no Christ, no Jonah, essentially no infallible, reliable Jesus. Because Jesus believed in a literal historical Jonah and a literal historical Nineveh and a real living wheel. And so if we're going to suggest these things are not true, we are beginning to question the very liability of Jesus as the prophet of God. You see, in studying Jonah, we are affirming the faithfulness of the Lord, his sinlessness, and his teaching as being without error. This week, when you come night by night in the will of God, and we come to preach in the word of God night by night, we will be bearing testimony that this is an orthodox view of the Bible. And that an orthodox view of the Bible is essential for true Christianity. We're not going to go back here, but I'm going to say it again. Studying Jonah as history is an important witness to a reformed Protestant view of the Bible. And we still stand there, don't we? We still deny a liberal agenda. Machen, he writes this in the book. An objection is sometimes offered against this view of the contents of the Bible. He's talking about the historical accuracy of the Bible. He says, must we, it is said, depend upon what happened so long ago? Does salvation wait upon the examination of musty records? Can we not find instead a salvation that is independent of history? A salvation that depends not only on what, or sorry, that depends only on what is with us here and now. What's he mean? Well, he's saying you can have a religious experience without needing the accurate words of the Bible. That's what the liberals say. That's mentioned saying the liberals are saying you can still experience Jesus without needing to depend upon the accuracy of the Word of God. Now, in Machen's day, the attacks were on the doctrines, the virgin birth and the resurrection, those things. But we face the very same attacks today. There are those around us, and they're telling us we can experience a religious affection towards Jesus without depending upon the accuracy of the Word of God. Doctrinally, but especially today, morally. You can dispense of the moral claims of Jesus and still have this fuzzy relationship You can still experience religion, but you don't need to affirm his views on marriage or life or truthfulness or any of those things. It matters because the modern liberal does not hold fast to the authority of Jesus. Machen says this, 
Certainly he does not accept the words of Jesus as they are recorded in the Gospels. For among the recorded words of Jesus are to be found those things which are most abhorrent to the modern liberal church, things like Matthew chapter 12 and the account of Jonah. Liberalism is different than Christianity. If there is no historical Jonah, there is no reliable Jesus and no salvation. So thanks for coming. You're affirming these things again. You're not coming and saying, well, there's no point in studying this allegorical account of Jonah. No, we're going to come and study the Word of God together. What's the third conviction then? If the first one is that Bible study is essential, and the second one is that Jonah is a real person, the third one is that Jonah, as a piece of Old Testament literature, still teaches us today. That's another conviction. We affirm again that this Old Testament prophecy is still beneficial to us all these hundreds and hundreds of years later. You see, what is true of the generation in the wilderness is true of Jonah. Again, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition unto whom the ends of the world are come. And so for Jonah, these things written aforetime were written for our learning. You see, people might say, why the Old Testament? Why Jonah? Well, because in the Bible. That's why. It's part of God's Word, and therefore it's useful for us. It's beneficial. And I hope you see that this week. I hope you see the breadth of the content of this book. That it's not just about a, a, a whale and a sea and all the rest. But actually, we, we see some of the dominant themes in the whole Bible story in, this, in these four simple chapters. See, it's my conviction this week that God is able to use His Word to change lives. That's why we study this book. It's in the conviction that God is able to impact your life, that you will leave this conference and you will never, ever be the same again. Now, I understand, I, and I, I'm always cautious. Sometimes you get the idea that God only works in these special things conferences and missions and the like, but God, God's Word is powerful on a regular service on a Lord's Day, preaching through a regular series over a whole year, whatever the case may be, God is able to change lives. But God does, in His kindness, use special efforts where God's people give themselves deliberately to the Word of God in an unusual fashion. God is pleased to come down and impact your lives, especially meetings like this that have been so thoroughly prayed over. Folks in that room and across the way praying night by night for God's blessing upon these meetings. God can change your life this week, young person. And older folk, you're not too old for God to impact your life as well. God showing you something new in His Word or reminding you of something old, but turning things around completely. Turning your direction and the paths of righteousness, the power of the word applied to the heart. And so, with those things in mind, really setting the scene, I trust for the next number of sessions, I want to begin tonight by really asking you to consider this book and to think, well, what does the Bible teach? Well, in our catechism, we're told the Bible teaches principally what man is to believe concerning God. So let's begin there. Let's look at this book in an overview sense and see, well, what does the God of Jonah look like? What does the God of Jonah do? Because the God of Jonah is our God today, and the God of Jonah is the God that never changes. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jonah, the God of Jesus, and our God tonight. So let me show you very, very simply four things that God does in this book. And I trust that by the end, like, please be patient with me. Because when we get to the end, you'll see how it all comes together in a way that shows us the significance of this book in the course of the Scriptures. Why is this book here? We're going to get there. But to get there, we've got to think, first of all, that God sees. It's the first thing. It says here that God sees. Verse number two. You have the words, again, of course, the Lord is calling Jonah here, go to Nineveh. And he says about this great city, their wickedness is come up before me. 
this language is really very interesting. The term to come up is a, it's a very common word. In the Hebrew, it has a sense of arising. But in the structure here, it has the thought of this wickedness building and accumulating. Not coming to God for the first time, but rising up before God. And the words before me is literally before my face. You get the picture. Wickedness is now right in the very face of God. And he sees their wickedness. Of course, if you're going to appreciate the word of God through Jonah, you've got to know something about Nineveh. It's referred to here as that great city. A great city marked by great wickedness. It was the chief city of Assyria. Again, if you know your Bible history, the Assyrians are going to come soon after this, and they're going to overwhelm the northern kingdom of Israel. Wicked, the enemies of God's people. Cruel, violent, immortal. A great city. Again, for young people and the, perhaps the children here tonight, let me encourage you a little, little task for the next number of days. Keep your eye out in Jonah for the word great. There's quite a number of great things in Jonah. And if you look at it carefully, you'll see that. Again, it ties the book together. So if you're a young person, you can jot down, here's great number one. It's the great city of Nineveh, verse number two. Now, there are several ways as to why it's great. Over in chapter 4, verse number 12, we're told something, sorry, verse number 11, we're told something about the, the city. Uh, it says there, that great city again, for then are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. I get different ideas. Again, these books are they're not always easy to understand all the details. Again, there are some who suggest this refers to the children in the city. Others suggest it refers to the absence of moral understanding. They couldn't discern right from wrong. Well, if it's children... Well, then perhaps we're looking at a million souls in this city. Even if it's not children, there's still 120,000 who are there in this so-called great city. Some of the, again, archaeological studies of Nineveh point out that the walls were 100 feet in breadth. They would hold three wagons side by side along the top of the walls. It was a great city. 1,500 towers. 200 feet high, each of them. This was truly a great city. You've got a reference over in chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Again, you see at the end of verse number 3. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city. Again, here's the reference of three days journey. <laughs> Again, like we saw for the reference to the people in chapter 4, there are different views regarding the three days journey. Some suggest... A day's journey, 20 miles, it took, it took you know, three days to go around the city, walking 20 miles a day. Others suggest that's probably not the case. And what's referred to here is more, well, the, the length of time it was to be in the city and get a good sense of the city. It was a three-day city, requiring a good three-day visit to appreciate what the city had to offer. Who knows for definite, but we're certainly told in the portion here, it was an exceeding great city. And this, by the way, the word exceeding here is interesting in itself. The word exceeding here is a translation of the word Elohim, the word for God, or the word for false gods. Again, it's used in this sense in a, in a picture language, and our, and our translators have said it's exceeding. But again, it may have the sense of a city that is great in the sight of God. We come back to the same thought God sees. You see, cities are great and they're not ignored by God, despite their great wickedness. You see, they are a wicked city. Chapter 1 again, verse number 2, their wickedness has come up before me. This reminds, of course, of God's words regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great because their sin is very grievous. Genesis 18, verse 20, marked by immorality, violence, and cruelty. One man says this, Great towns abound in wealth and treasures, which sinful men soon make to minister to their lusts and appetites, to support their extravagance, vanity, and debauchery. The better the Lord is to them, the worse they grow. The more they have, the more they sin. When the land is full of treasures, it is full of idols. 
Many drive faster to hell, the more prosperous they are. Beware of desiring prosperity. And again, if I can speak to some of the young people here, there's often this lust in young people to get to the big smoke. You know, to get to where the action is. Oh yeah, you can go where the action is. But the action there is marked by great iniquity. Great sinfulness and wickedness. In the U.S., you see the major city areas. And in those city areas, the tendency in elections is to vote for those who promote all manner of iniquity. The majority in those cities are pushing the abortion agenda and the same-sex marriage agenda. And you go to the rural areas, and there's less of that. It is a fact of human experience that the cities are marked by profound immorality. And for some reason, young people thirst after such experience. I'm not suggesting, please understand me, I'm not suggesting for a second that a Christian cannot live in a city. There's a mission field there. There's a work to do there. There's a witness to accomplish it. That's not my point. My simple point is, when you go there, know what you're getting. Go with your eyes open, because these cities are marked by great wickedness. But as their wickedness described by God, I've told you already, verse number two, is he's striving that wickedness as building up in the sight of the people of the Lord. He's, he's seeing their wickedness. Now, that means something. That God has been watching this wickedness accumulate for quite some time. It's been happening in his sight. But it's building and building to the point that he then says to Jonah, Now's the time. Arise, go to Nineveh. But he's not been blind to their sin over the past number of years. He's been very, very aware of it. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. There's something tremendously encouraging about those words Their wickedness has come up before me. God saw it. It didn't mean that God approved of it. And again, some of the idea, fire is not falling from heaven upon our cities today, therefore there must not be such a thing as sin. Nineveh sinned for decades. God saw it. But in his long suffering, and for whatever other reason he may have, he waited to bring the word of judgment through Jonah. And do you know what else is true? He saw it without approving of it. And the fact their wickedness was great, it didn't mean that they couldn't repent. This city marked by great wickedness, accumulating for year upon year after year, And yet there was still hope that Nineveh, when they heard the word of God, could turn to God and could repent of their sins. You know, some of you folks, I suspect, you're a bit down in the dumps because you rightly observe the world in which you live and you see this accumulating wickedness. It's arising up before God's sight and you think to yourself, Oh, Lord God, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Before you come and deal with his wickedness. And perhaps you forget the fact that God is able to come in power and turn things around for his glory. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Be encouraged. Balamina is not beyond the hope of the gospel. Belfast, not beyond the hope of the gospel. God sees. Secondly, God speaks. These are obvious. You could do this yourself. You can come up with this yourself. God speaks the first words. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. That's true, of course. Or God speaks when compared with idols. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. But the speaking voice of God in Jonah changes things, changes people, changes hearts of men. God speaks to Jonah. Again, chapter 1, verse 1. God speaks through Jonah to Nineveh, chapter 3, verse number 2. Jonah arose, or sorry, verse number 2, yes, arise, go unto Nineveh, again, God speaking to Jonah, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. God's going to come and speak through Jonah to Nineveh. 
Now, we'll come back to those thoughts in future studies, but just pause and think. What's the outcome of Jonah coming and speaking to the Ninevites? It is that they would repent. And it brings about their repentance, as we will see. Which indicates to me, again, a simple truth. And that is that God's mercy is seen in God's speaking. The marvelous mercies of God in the book of Jonah include the fact that God is pleased to speak to mankind. Even, or especially, words of warning and judgment. We mustn't forget this. The grace of God is seen in the preaching of the doctrine of hell in the ears of God's people and in the sinner who gather in the house of God. People don't like it sometimes. That's a very negative type of preaching there. They preach about God's wrath and God's judgment. We need to hear about how to be a good father and a good mother. We need to hear these things about, about God's love and God's grace. And yes, we do all those things. But God is gracious to you, young person. God is gracious to you when you hear the preaching of the wrath of God from this pulpit. That's a mark of God's kindness to you. And it's a mark of God's kindness to this particular town. You see, turn across to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll just show you this and then we'll move on. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, there's a little phrase in verse number 1 that is a description of the gospel. Chapter 6, verse number 1, Paul comes and says, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. The word in vain there refers to something that is no fruit. So, in what way can someone receive the grace of God and that grace not bear fruit in their lives? It's not talking about saving grace. When God comes and saves, that's never without fruit. That's impossible. The Spirit of God always brings forth fruit. So, I suggest to you here this phrase, the grace of God, is describing the gospel ministry. Over in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul refers to the stewardship he received of the grace of God, namely the stewardship of gospel ministry, the contents of the Word of God. And that fits very well with chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Because Paul is saying to them, receive not the grace of God without that bearing fruit. And that is very possible. For some of you in this place, you've been under the Word of God for year upon year after year, and the grace of God has made no impact in your life. It's borne no fruit in your life because your ears have been stopped and your eyes have been closed and your heart's been heavy and you have not received the grace of God, the gospel message, with profit. It's a very serious thing. Paul says, don't do it that way. But my point is, notice the fact that this message is called the grace of God. The fact that God speaks in the gospel is a, shy, a sign of his grace. And so, what's the contents of that gospel back in chapter 5? It includes the warning. We're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, be reconciled to God. Folks, reconciliation presupposes enmity with God and the wrath of God upon you. And so Paul preaches about the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And he says to you, be reconciled to God through the work of Christ Jesus, him coming to bear our sins, verse 21. But all of that is the grace of God. Never, ever resent a gospel minister looking you in the eye and telling you, you're a sinner, you're going to hell and the wrath of God abides upon you as long as you don't believe in the Son of God. When you hear that preaching, thank the Lord for His grace. You see, what happens when God brings judgment upon an area? There's a famine of the preaching of the Word of God. Not of bread, not of water, but of the preaching of the Word of God. We have places, of course, in the U.S., the gospel door has had to close. No support for the gospel ministry. The end of witness. 
and it saddens our hearts. But it's also a sobering sign of God's judgment upon an area. The gospel was preached there, and the candlestick has now been removed. You've got a Bible conference. You're in a church that values the preaching of God's word because they understand that God speaks in his grace and kindness. God sees, he speaks, he sends. Of course, it's Jonah, it's a prophet. What happens to prophets, they get sent. The basic idea of being a prophet, isn't it? We, we see this pattern. The Lord comes to show his mercy and ordinarily sends a messenger. God is sovereign in his selection. He, he comes to Jonah and he says to Jonah sovereignly, I don't care what you're doing, Jonah, it's time for you to go to Nineveh. He sends a messenger. It's true of all the Old Testament prophets and judges. They were chosen of God sovereignly and sent. Think of John the Baptist. He's sent of God to, if you like, come as a forerunner of Christ. Think of the gospel minister. How shall they preach except they be sent? The sending of a servant into a place when God comes in his kindness. Of course, this weekend is Reformation weekend. Coming towards the end of October, and it's a good time to remind ourselves that when God moves in revival and reformation, ordinarily sends a messenger. He's kind, and his mercy sends a messenger to bring his word to a community. We read of these mighty men of God, and we, yeah, we, read, we read and we look through rose-tinted spectacles. I, I, I value Jonah, Thomas, honestly. He is the most unworthy prophet. He's sent, he runs, he preaches with success, and he resents that success. Could you think of anybody worse to pick as a prophet than Jonah? God's making no mistakes. We will see at the end of our studies that God works in Jonah's heart through all this. But he's a picture again to encourage us that God uses earthen vessels, unworthy servants to bring his word. Maybe you tonight, maybe you're here tonight as a young person, not so young person, you realize the Lord's been working in your soul, giving you a burden to preach the word, but you're so overwhelmed by your unworthiness. Are you worse than Jonah? God's able to use you, to work in your heart and use you in the preaching of the word of God. But that's not the main point. You see, when we think of God seeing and God speaking, and God sending. When you think of that in terms of the biblical narrative, you ultimately come to the great prophet of God, Jesus Christ. You see, when God is doing a work in redemption, he sends a messenger, he sends a prophet, and he sends his son as one who is, we saw in Matthew 12, greater than Jonas. And so reading Jonah, you've got to think to yourself, well, how do I get to Christ from Jonah? Well, in part, you get to Christ as one who is sent of God. He comes as the great prophet of God. As he says in John chapter 6, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. God sees, God speaks, God sends, and finally, God spares. That's the message of this book. Jonah is a book about God sparing. He is mercy for Jonah. Jonah's a child of God, and yet marked by tremendous remaining sin. A heart problem that we'll see towards the end of the week. We'll see the heart issues in Jonah's spirit, and yet God still shows him mercy and correction. Backslider, you haven't gone away from the arm of God. God's arm is not too short to reach a backslider. You can't run far enough from God to get outside his grasp. You come night by night through this week and see God changing your heart through the preaching of the Word of God. God has mercy to Jonah. God has mercy to a group of sailors. We'll see that tomorrow night. They're not looking for God, but God's looking for them. And he shows them his mercy. And of course, you see God's mercy to the Ninevites. But they're, they're especially important. Because what you see in the salvation of the Ninevites, as explained to us in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, 
So I want you to see the big picture here tonight. In Jonah 4 verse 2, as Jonah wrestles with the will of God, his troubles with God's will in turn reveals God's will. He complains. The middle part of verse number 2, Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Jonah knew his Bible. And he's referring to God's words to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, which indicates to us that what God has done in Nineveh, Jonah's come, he's preached, they've repented of their sins. What God has done in Nineveh is an outworking of God's character as revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. That means that the Ninevites have come to experience the mercy of God. Now, that's not surprising to you tonight. You know all about God's mercy. You've you've heard preaching on the far side of the cross. You see the mercy of God. But this mercy to the Ninevites, it troubled a loyal Israelite like Jonah. See, never take God's mercy for granted. It's God's sovereign prerogative to show mercy or to withhold mercy according to his will. But Israel in Jonah's day is living in apostasy and in idolatry. And the solemn warning in the Old Covenant. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and the verse number 21. This is God again speaking through and to Moses, uh, describing again the nature of the covenant. He says, they have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. He's describing a time when the people of God, again, they fall into apostasy and declension and idolatry. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. And then the Lord says, I will move them to jealousy. With those which are not a people, I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Jonah's anger is a sign of this covenant warning being fulfilled as God shows mercy to the Ninevites. The people of God, they've turned their backs against God. And God is now coming and showing showing his mercy to an unworthy people, a very wicked people. He's showing his mercy to them. And in so doing, he is provoking the Israelites like Jonah to anger and resentment against the mercy of God. Why is that important? Well, because if you turn to Romans chapter 10, you'll see this all fits together even more. Romans chapter 10 and the verse number 19. Now, Romans 9 through 11, three chapters all dealing with the issue, what about the unbelieving Israelites? God's mercy through Christ coming to Jew and Gentile, but Jews have rejected the gospel. What does that all mean? Well, part of Paul's explanation He quotes again these words from Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's in verse 19 of Romans chapter 10. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. My suggestion to you is that the Ninevites are living proof of the warnings of God's covenant in Deuteronomy 32. That same warning is then used to explain the Jewish rejection in Christ's time, meaning that the Ninevites' rejection, or the Ninevites' acceptance, sorry, under the mercy of God, is a type of Gentiles in Balamina receiving the gospel. That's what it's all doing. It's showing to us That God is going to show mercy. The Jewish people will by and large reject the gospel. But God will show mercy in provoking them to jealousy by showing mercy to Ninevites and to folks in Northern Ireland. It's the marvelous mercy of God. This Old Testament prophecy paves the way for us to see the marvelous mercy of God beyond the boundaries of Israel. If you're in Jonah's day and you're living in Bal, I mean, I don't know what was here in those days. I'm not, I have no idea. But you would have no hope of the mercy of God 
But God shows mercy to Ninevites. And there is the opening up of the possibility of God showing mercy to Gentile nations. And so Christ comes to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, showing the marvelous mercy of God. God's mercy comes in the person of Christ Jesus, the Son that is given, salvation coming to the Jew, but to the Greek also as Christ dies to secure the just mercy of God. We need to hear that tonight and all week. God's mercy is marvelous to the whosoever that believes in his name, Jew or Gentile. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see how it all fits together? God sees sin, speaks a word of judgment, sends a prophet, and spares the sinner. Folks, that's the gospel. Young person tonight, your sin is not hid from God. He sees the very deep recesses of your heart. Older folk rejected the gospel for 30, 40 years. God sees all your rejections. And your sin and your wickedness come up before his face tonight. But he sends his word. He speaks his word of warning to your soul that in his kindness he would spare the sinner. Now that's true in the big picture, but it's also true for you individual soul tonight. God's a God of mercy. Go home and sleep upon that. May it comfort your heart, cause you to run to him, begging for his mercy tonight. Let's close in prayer this evening. May God... Again, encourage our hearts in the coming nights and days to see more of his mercy, to see the display of that mercy in Christ Jesus. Eternal God, you again, you know the heart of every man in this place, every woman, every young person, every child, boy and girl. Oh Lord, you know them personally and directly. You're acquainted with all of their ways. And so, eternal God, we pray that you do what is needed in their souls. Change their hearts. Draw them to Christ. May they see and marvel at the marvelous mercies of God. He is a pardoning God like thee, or he is grace and mercy so rich and so free. Thank you again for the gift of your Son, who came to die that we may have this mercy. May we rejoice in him, prepare our hearts tonight, the Lord's day tomorrow. Dismiss us with your favor and your fear. Help us to walk with thee. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.